Good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church Virtual Church. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to conclude uh, chapter 1 uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, I hope you have your, your coffee or your drink available as I do um, for, this, for this morning. And um, we have a couple of announcements. Um, first, we have um, a, a birthday announcement. And so today we want to wish uh, Isabel Langat a happy birthday. I don't even want to think about how old she is. I think I first met her when she was two years old. So uh, happy birthday to you, Isabel. Uh, praying for you this morning. Hope you have a great day. Um, also, we want to announce that uh, Hannah Rouse has made it home from the hospital. So we're very excited about that. Uh, please continue to keep them in your prayers. I think she went home. It was I think it was Wednesday night, maybe Thursday that she went home. Um, but keep her in your prayers in case you missed it. Um, she has a very treatable form of, of leukemia, and so, but nonetheless, it's leukemia, so we want to keep praying for her. Uh, last week, I don't know if you guys can see this with all the shine and the lights, but we made um, bookmarks by we, I, I mean Faye and Melanie, whipped together these, these bookmarks to, to pray for Hannah. It has a picture from Bunnies from the, the Green Ember. It's a, it's a series of books that Hannah really enjoys. And uh, our kids, and they refer to them as the the danger bunnies. And so it's a just a just a, a way that we can remember to to keep them in our prayers. You can put it in your Bible or whatever you read, um, just or or up on your wall, just as a reminder to keep her uh, in your prayers during this this uh, this trying time. And so with that, let's let's pray, and we'll get into First Thessalonians. We'll be in verses six through ten today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now, Lord, as we navigate this passage. Lord, help me to have a clarity of thought. Uh, Lord, help each of us that is are listening to this, uh, this sermon, Father, that you would help us to focus on your text. Lord, that uh, we would be able to understand uh, what was said in the original context, that we would glean applications that we can apply to our own lives. Father, we do look to you for uh, encouragement and hope. Um, We ask that you would help us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. I I do know that we covered verse 6 last week, and so this is a, uh, a way for us to sort of connect the two thoughts together and in the Greek, uh, verses 6 and 7 um, are, are one sentence, actually. And so here I am, going to read First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 in the New International Version. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. 
who rescues us from the coming wrath. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us now by your Spirit, in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, so the two words that guide the study of Thessalonians um, are Advent and affliction. So they dealt with much affliction. Uh, The gospel came to them in affliction. Paul was run out of town. We've We've gone over this a number of times, but sort of the, the overriding... Uh, backdrop to this letter is the persecution that these believers uh, were going through, and so Paul encourages them in the midst of their incur- in the midst of their suffering, and we see in the midst of their trials that the gospel had taken root in their hearts, and that they were they were transformed. And so there's afflictions and the advent, the 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 longing for the the return of Jesus. And so last week, we had this section where we dealt with uh, the, the election of God and these saints, or the word I used was chosen. And I said that this week, we would look at changed, so that they were chosen, they became believers, and as they converted to Christianity and the Holy Spirit and dwelt them, and they were sealed by him, then change resulted in their lives, which will happen in every believer's life. Uh, If you have the Spirit of God within you, you will see change. His fruit will manifest itself. It might not come in hours. It might not come in days. It might not come in weeks. But as you look over the course of a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, you'll see evidence of his hand in your life. And we remind ourselves that as we look at today's section, all of this section, verses 2 through 10, are, are one, and it falls under the banner of, of gratitude. So back in verse 2, if we look at that, it says that we always thank God for all of you. And throughout this section, underneath that banner of giving thanks, there's a, a number of things, this, this whole first chapter Uh, Paul is giving thanks to God for the things that he's seen and heard about within the lives of the believers. And so today, the thing that he's giving thanks for is he's giving thanks for the reality that their lives have been transformed. And it's not just them saying that their lives have been transformed. It's that word about their transformed lives has gone everywhere. So now back to verse 6. We see you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So they became imitators of Paul. Paul came in, he was there for three or four weeks. We know that he went into the synagogue and he was in the synagogue for three Saturdays. And so there was time before and there was time after. And by the end of his time there, the local synagogue, those that did not believe and refused to hear the message of of Jesus, that he was the actual Messiah, they ran Paul out of town. And when they ran Paul out of town, they basically took Jason, the guy he was staying with, potentially a relative of Paul, they took him and they basically roughed him up. And through that encounter, Jason said to them, you know what, I'll, I'll promise you that Paul will not come back to town. And so Paul fled and, and Timothy and Silas and Luke, they all leave and they continue the second missionary journey. 
But as they went out, Paul sends back Timothy. There was no restriction on Timothy. Timothy goes back to sort of follow up with the Thessalonians. And he sees how they're doing. He sees uh, how God is moving in their midst, and he's excited about it. And so he returns to Paul, and he tells them all this stuff. And, and so then when Paul hears this, Paul pens this letter to them in response. It's, it's believed that Thessalonians is one of the earliest New Testament letters or books that have been written. Uh, Galatians is up there. Thessalonians is right there. Some suggest this is early as um, a, a month to six months to a year uh, following Paul's uh, Paul's event, uh, the Paul's encounter with them. It's it's really on on the when he gets to Corinth within the second missionary journey that he pens this letter, and so this is all very fresh. And so Paul's encouraging them, shepherding them, uh, encouraging them to run the race. And he first points out, and he hears from Timothy that they have become imitators. Uh, of them, that as as Paul went into the town, as they lived their lives for them within a month, this group of believers, they were able to see how the gospel took root in Paul's life and Timothy's life and Silas's life. And they began to imitate, to mimic, to draw from the principles that they saw in Paul and of the Lord he Paul, pulls out because Paul is imitating Jesus. He's living his life how God has shown him to live his life. And they see that, and then they draw from their experiences, and they begin to sort of to, to pattern their lives after their example. It's a, it's a powerful thing to consider this, the impact that others have in your life. Last, last week I said uh, that quote, um, show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. We each are so influenced by other people, the friends, the, the people, our family members, those that we're in close proximity with. Maybe it's media, social media, whatever it is, uh, there are influences in your life that are shaping who you are. And that's why it's so important to have good, godly, uh, biblical influences in your life so that you can be shaped by them. Well, that's why we, so we stress reading the Bible, taking it in, allowing God to, to, to do his work within your life through his word. In Hebrews chapter 6, I love this, what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, the author there says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience, patience inherit what is promised. So the writer there says to the believers, hey, we don't want you to become lazy in the Christian life. We, we want you to be active in the Christian life. And one of the things that you can do to be active is to, to imitate those. And he says those, and he explains who those are. He said those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he says, don't be lazy about your faith, but I want you to look around. I want you to see others who know Christ, who have walked with Christ faithfully. Look to them in their example and imitate their behaviors and reactions and things in, their, in, in your life. Model your life after them. See how they go through trials. See how they go through joys. See how they go through afflictions. And as you do that, allow their uh, example and influence to have an impact in your life. And there's so much here. We learn by seeing. Um, I, I, you know, they say that, uh, what's, what's it saying? That uh, something, uh, they're caught, not taught. 
And so Jesus modeled this in the in his life with the disciples. That as uh, you know, they talked about the dust of the rabbi, and Jesus lived his life. He went about. His disciples were there in his tracks, and they just sort of watched Jesus do all of this stuff, and it had a profound impact in their life. I think that there's a value not only to being uh, immersed with other believers to see how they go about navigating sort of the landmines of this world. But we can do this through history. And reading Christian biographies is critical. Reading, or now we have Audible, you know, you can listen to Christian uh, biographies of, of believers from long ago to see what they went through and how the Christian life uh, worked out in their own life. You know, we live during this time of, of a pandemic, the, the coronavirus, and wherever you stand on it, there's a, there's a whole a range of beliefs about this. Everybody seems to indicate that the ones earlier were far more devastating, uh, which I don't want to you know, list all of them. But one guy who has been an influence in my life, and I've enjoyed reading about him, and during this last few months, uh, pulling from his example and seeing how he lived and ministered. So Charles Spurgeon is like this, this heavyweight of a pastor who... Um, lived and ministered in London uh, a while ago. And I believe that it was the bubonic plague. I could be wrong on my plague of whatever he went through. But during uh, his time of of ministering there, uh, there's all sorts of writings that he wrote to his his students. Uh, I I really love his book, uh, Spurgeon's Letters to His his Students, uh, Future Pastors. And he talked about in the midst of this catastrophic bubonic plague and, and like how everybody was dying and what they were going through, how he continued to minister and care for them to put his life at risk from a human perspective. But he went into the homes and he went into the hospitals and he ministered to them uh, regardless of the, the fears that were placed upon him. Super in, encouraging. You know, last year I read and we handed out to, to a number of people the insanity of God, and uh, I had no idea what 2020 would bring. None of us did. But to see how that book, reading about the testimonies of these believers in places like China and Russia um, and, and harsh areas in the Middle East, to see how they lived their life in the midst of afflictions was very encouraging and helpful and instructive to me as we navigate what we're navigating here. Whether this is persecution, which I'm not so sure that it's persecution, it's on the line. It's certainly an affliction for all of us. And so how do we navigate this? It's, it's, It's difficult. But by looking to others who have gone through this sort of thing in history. Nothing is new under the sun. We can learn from them and how they handled it and how they honored Christ. And it's encouraging to do that. And so what did they do? He says, you became imitators of us and the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So he says, as you heard the message, as you went through this, in the midst of severe suffering, I think the New American Standard says much affliction, In the midst of this, 
You welcomed the message. You welcomed the gospel with joy by the Spirit. So they, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution that they were going for, they heard the message that Paul communicated to them, the gospel about Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and that in him there's life, in him there's payment for our sins, in him there's hope. And so as they heard the message, their lives were transformed and this joy, in, in spite of all of the stuff that was going on around them, God moved supernaturally. You know, about a month ago, I have dear friends, Brad and Crystal. They have six kids and she's pregnant with the seven. They were in a horrific car accident between, uh, from, they were leaving Texas, they were on their way back home to San Diego And in the car accident, they lost two of their children, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. Catastrophic. And so watching them go through this great tragedy that, that I can't even imagine the sorrow and the anguish. In the midst of this, they, they are so anchored in Christ and, and through their tears to talk about the hope that they have and the joy that they have and to see God's sovereign plan in it. It's hard to imagine, but I can see within them that there's something supernatural happening in their lives by the Holy Spirit helping them through this this horrific disaster. And I think that that's what Paul saw in their life, and he was giving thanks to them for. In verse 7, we transition, it's, and so it's this, this connective clause in the Greek that basically ties this first part, you became imitators of us, and so through this, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now let's just get these, this location down. So remember, and when we looked at the story in Acts, we, we got to a certain point, Paul wanted to keep going up to what we know as Asia. The Spirit kept uh, stopping him from being able to go up there. And he pushes, pushes, pushes west. Maybe it's this way for you, but pushes west, what we know as modern-day Turkey. He gets to Troas, and then he has this vision, this man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And so Paul goes over to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is the region of, of, of Greece that we know today. And Greece was basically divided into a north and south. I'm blanking on which is north and which is south. I believe that the north side was Macedonia and the south side was, was Achaia. And so basically what he's saying, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this whole country of Greece, you became a model to all of them. And I think that there's an important lesson here for us uh, that we need to recognize that our lives after we become Christians, we, uh, our life becomes a roadmap for others to Christ. How you then begin to live your life, how then Christ moves in your life through things. As your life begins to go different directions, as you start to stop doing things that you used to do and start doing new things, and as, as crisis has arrived, that you respond differently than you used to do. Others see this, and you become an example to others. And don't think perfection. This, this is not about perfection. There, there's something about uh, transformation in this life as you begin to, to change and to grow and to walk like Christ and to become more like him. 
we, uh, we see changes, not perfection. As a parent, as a, as a spouse, when you make mistakes, when you sin against your children or your, your spouse, instead of to, to sort of uh, dig your heels in in pride, that when you have the Spirit of God and, and He begins to convict you and uh, change you, we learn to say two very powerful words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I messed up. Help me. Like, will you forgive me? I want to do better. And then as the course of your life, you begin to be more Christ-like. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And so as others see you respond like Christ, it has an impact on them. But it's not about the, the, the quick change. It's not about the sudden fix. This is, you know, this is a, a, about changing over the course of time, six months, a year, two years, five years, a decade, 20 years. You know, this, um, this week, one of the things I've been doing, we've been remodeling a little area outside, and, and, and uh, it was time to plant some, to plant some plants. And, and so I wanted some shade trees because the afternoon sun gets brutal over there. So I ran to the nursery. I got three tra- trees that I knew I, I'd used before, and I liked them, and they grow really fast. They provide a lot of shade, and so I think, oh, I'll plant them in this little area. And I planted three of them in a row. And I think, oh, they'll grow up. They'll make a nice little canopy. And then later after I planted them, I, I texted the, the guy at the nursery down the road from the church. And I said, hey, what were the names of those trees again? And so he gave me the names of the, the, the trees. And so that night, and I'm kind of like researching the name of the tree. And I start seeing that they have a very aggressive root system. They're saying, don't plant them near any sort of concrete. It'll jack up all your concrete. And then I'm it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, and I got to go outside. I got to go look at where I planted them with a tape measure. And I'm like, oh, man. So I could like leave it there in their mat and what would be a problem in 20 years, or I could redig them up and then relocate them to sort of better positioning. And so I said, I'm not going to go to the gym in the morning, Anna. I'm going to wake up at five, and my gym routine will be digging up these plants, digging new holes, and relocating them. And so I did that. And I think that that's sort of a picture of our lives. Like you can dig your holes in, your heels in, and you can sort of say, I'm going to just keep holding this. And over the course of 20 years, your life gets messed up. Or you can make a mistake. You can say, I'm sorry. Let me restore what I've wronged. Help me to do this over. And then like I did with the trees, I, I put them in good areas. So 20 years from now, no, nobody will be the wiser to what happened. So 20 years from now, hopefully when you go to my house, you'll see these three beautiful trees in in great placement. They'll never know about what could have been if I'd left them so close to the house. And so they became a model. Here, these new Christians then became a model, and the word spread to their country, essentially. And he goes on to say, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has been known everywhere. So their faith in God, it went all around the world, that everywhere, not just their country, that the word about them was spreading like wildfire. I do like the first part, the Lord's message. This wasn't Paul's message. This wasn't Timothy's message. This wasn't Silas's message. This was the Lord's message. 
that transferred from Paul to them and then from them to the world. I think it's important to recognize the origin of the message. This is a good reminder of why we go through books of the Bible. We don't just pick topics and and kind of look at the news, look around us, oh, what do we think people want to hear about? and pick some topic and preach that. A lot of people do that, and I think it gets a lot of people in danger, in dangerous places. It, it steers people away from the God. It, it takes people away from knowing how to approach the Scriptures. And so over the course of my 13 years here, we have just gone a book of the Bible at a time. Back in March, when the whole shutdown happened, I think we missed one Sunday. And then by the next Sunday, Cross Connection Church had offered, hey, you can come down and record and we'll help you get set up with everything. And I remember sort of, I I was doing those gunnergrams every single day. And during this time, I remember going, well, what do I, I I was just kind of talking out loud, like, do we do a special message? How do we handle this? And I never forget, Heidi Rouse was one of a handful of people that said, just go back to Mark. We just want normalcy back in our lives. Just, just go back to where we were. And it was, it was a good reminder to, to me. And it just it made, made me thankful for our body that we want to be in the word of God. And then as we continued through Mark, it was sort of shocking to me how relevant so many of the passages that we uh, were working through were dealing with actually what we were going through, render under Caesar to Caesar and the things to God to God. Like just so many things like that. And so it's the Lord's message. That's why we go through books of the Bible. I'm not going to preach topically over subjects that come up, whatever the media decides. We go through the word of God and we allow God to speak to us. And it was known Everywhere. Everywhere. Their transformation gave people something to talk about. I love, um, I love bumping into people that knew the, quote-unquote, the old gunner, that when they go back 20, 30 years and they run into me and they say, oh, you're, you're, you're a Christian now. And I say, yeah. In fact, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and they, like, I... It, it, you have to have known me back then to know why that would crack them up today. But I, 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 I love it because it's a, it's a testimony of the transformation that God has done in my life. For those of you that know me today and you didn't know me back then, you just know me as Pastor Gunner. You can, you can only imagine, but you haven't seen it. You just know me as, as, a, as a pastor. I remember back to those, those early years of my life, and as God worked in my life and, and in my heart and convicted me, having to navigate really hard decisions, like hard decisions about the things that I would do and I wouldn't do, uh, considering relationships that were really close to me, that, I, um, that because of, of the direction that God was leading me, that I, I had to say, you know what, I have to take a time out in this relationship. I, I can't be in this friendship anymore because when I'm around you, I end up doing these things. There's a huge transformation that happens. And when the Spirit of God gets 
himself implanted into your soul and your mind and in your thinking, and then you have to grapple with things because you know your creator and he is within you that you have to navigate. And it's, it's difficult. And that's why I think it's so important to have those that have, that have gone down the road before you, to have those that are older in Christ that say, oh, I was there. Let me be accountable to you. Let me help you find your way out of whatever struggles you're struggling with. And then as you begin to change, then you have somebody else that God has placed in your life that is new to the faith, and then your life will be an example to them that the person who's guided you doesn't have that relationship. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. He goes on to say, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And so this goes into evangelism, what I was sort of talking about, you know, that you have somebody that you're looking to and they're helping you navigate the Christian life. And then as changes begin to happen in you, there are those uh, that, that are seeing your life being changed. It could be your children. It could be your spouse. It could be your friends. It could be your coworkers. It could be your neighbors. It could be whoever. But as your life is being transformed, they're noticing. Paul says concerning the Thessalonians, he's going around on his missionary journey and he's getting to places following the trip to Thessalonica and he arrives and the people there are telling him about what happened in Thessalonica. And he's like, crazy, the word, that, the word about what had happened in Thessalonica had, had traveled faster than Paul could travel to these various regions. And so I think that this is something about, you know, this is like lifestyle evangelism or, or you know, personal evangelism. I know in seminary I had to go do a, hor- a horrific evangelism class. I, I hated it. It was Christmas time. We went to the mall and we were supposed to go around and talk to people. I, it, it, it was the most horrible experience. And the reason, some people are very gifted at that. For me, it's not something I, um, it's just not, it's just not my style. Um, I do believe in developing meaningful, genuine relationships with those who don't know Christ so that you can then live your life in a way and, and just take time and allow them to see in a meaningful way what it means to follow Jesus. Wherever you are, you are in a unique position to reach people for Christ through your life that only you have the inroads to. I don't have the inroads there. I have inroads into the certain areas of, of, of society that you don't have, and you have areas of inroads that I don't have and others don't have. And so the key is to be faithful to shining the light for Christ in the areas that God has opened the doors for you to shine. He goes on to say, they tell how you turned to God from idols. So Paul like showed up in the town. He starts hearing from the people about the transformation that happened in the the believers in Thessalonica's life. And Paul's like, well, what did you hear? And he says, well, they, they tell me how you turned to God from idols. So they know that these people were into idol worship and they were all into the the Greek gods and all the the vast array of gods that they had. And the word had gotten out about these, they had ditched all of the gods and they followed after the one true God. 
A genuine conversion results in a total reorientation of one's life, a new heart and a new mind. And so the question really is like, what are your, what are your idols? The, the, that is an answer that can have any number of things. It's not necessarily like a little, uh, uh, you know, like a gadget or something, like a rabbit's foot that you think brings you all your good luck. It could be. But what are things that you put in your life before God? Things that take a higher priority. And I think that as we identify our struggles, it's important that we are in relationships with other Christians, that we're transparent. That's a thing that's very difficult for a lot of people to do. You come into church and you think that you're supposed to put on your Sunday best and put up this this image. And those people are the Pharisees who Jesus talked about as being, you know, whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but really their insides are rotten, 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 and they don't necessarily uh, share about their struggles. And so the church needs to be viewed more of a place as a hospital. It's where the sick come. And we're all sick. And we identify our struggles and the things that we're going through. That's always been my style, you know, love it or hate it. My style of preaching is to be very transparent. It's who I am. And I think it's something that should be in the pulpits across America, that, that we are, the pastors are in the trenches with our people and that we are just, we're just individuals who have been saved by Christ's grace, just like all of you. And we've been called into this role, not because of our perfection, but because of our imperfection and God's grace in our lives. And so my prayer is that as you have temptations, you would come alongside other believers and share and pray for one another and hold each other accountable. That's why being in like a a group together, gathering together, we are not designed to be in isolation. And during this time when you find yourself in isolation, do what you can do to reach out. Like many of you um, who are not coming to the in-person services, I'm getting text messages from you. I'm getting emails from you. I'm getting messages on Facebook. And so we need to stay connected while disconnected as best you can. It's for your own good. So he says, you've turned to God from idols to do something. Notice the next phrase here, to serve the living and true God We were created to serve. God didn't save you just to sit on the sidelines. He's gifted you and he's called you to do something. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. 1 Peter 4.10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. This was one of the, the things I think early in my Christian life that I, 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 I was struggling to advance in my maturing because I didn't have an outlet to serve or I didn't know how. 
I was at Horizon, and I felt like all the spots on the team were taken. I didn't really know that, but there wasn't really like a place for me to get involved. I didn't know how to go about doing it. I'm sure there was, but I didn't in my early Christian life. Then Miles, when he planted the rock, and we went over to the, to the rock when it started, then it was like you had this mega church, church plant, and it was so easy and encouraged to get involved and to get serving. And so there became this outlet here I was, a Navy SEAL who was on the road something like 260 days out of the year, but I talked to the pastors, and they say, hey, when you're in town, just greet people. Pass out bullets and shake people's hands. Be a, be a greeter. Help people find their seats. And so from that act of service, God began to, to move and work in my life. And so I'd encourage you to start serving. Put your gift into motion. And I don't think that any of us actually know what our gift is until we begin to use, just to serve and then God leads us. The old saying, you can't steer a parked car. You have to start moving. And as you say, Lord, here I am, use me. Help me to, to be of service to you. As you step out by faith, God will then lead you. Verse 10, and to wait for his son for heaven. So waiting isn't necessarily like sitting in the lobby at your doctor's office, like doing nothing. It's this, this longing for his return, looking around and seeing this fallen world and being so frustrated by the world around us that we just want Jesus to come back. I've shared multiple times that in the midst of this pandemic, when all the riots broke, in, broke out, to see the, the town I went to high school and sort of grew up in La Mesa, to see multiple buildings burned to the ground. Then the following week, as protests were threatened to come into Escondido, to, to drive through Escondido to see everything like boarded up, just that feeling of like, I'm just sick of this, Lord. Like moving away is not going to solve the problem because no matter where you go, there's just sinful man. And I think it was like the first time in my life that I actually sort of had this longing within my heart of like, Lord, just come back. Like, I, I want to go to your, your world where, where there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow. I, I've seen this in, in Christians who are much older than myself, like in their 80s, 90s. I've seen a consistent theme amongst those who are in that like 80 to 100 demographic. They're just ready for the Lord to come back. Then as he talks about his son, so there's sort of, and to wait for his son from heaven. This is what Paul heard about. Then when he says this, then he unpacks the son whom he raised from the dead, the gospel that Jesus was executed on our, in our place. He was our substitute. He was buried according to the scriptures. And then he rose three days later, according to the scriptures, as payment for our sins but he resurrected. The resurrection changed everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, this whole chapter is about the resurrection, about those that saw the many witnesses early on, the definition, the first four verses of what the gospel is. I think it's like the first, I don't know, 10 verses. And he says, all of these people who saw the risen Christ at the time of writing, you could go talk to them. You could, uh, you could interview them and you would hear about their firsthand testimony. And then in verse 17 through 20, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and then those also who have fallen asleep are lost. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, all of this is meaningless. 
if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people must, we, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, if this whole thing is a big sham, this is, we should be pitied. This is, this is worthless. You're wasting your time. But then he says in the very beginning of verse 20, he says, but Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. This Paul, who was a great persecutor of the church, is now sharing Christ with all people. Our hope of salvation is found in Jesus. Look at it, it says, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. I, I, you know, we see people like at sporting events or we used to at sporting events or maybe street signs that says, Jesus saves. I like how this comes. Jesus rescues, which is probably a different way of saying the same thing. Who rescues us from the coming wrath. And whenever we deal with the wrath of God, it makes some people sort of feel uncomfortable. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It, it, it just it sits wrong with us. And there was a man, his name is Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian from Croatia. He used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He thought the idea of an angry God was barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love. But then his country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and countrymen. The following reflections from Wolf's book, Free of Charge, that's the title of the book, Free of Charge, reveal his new understanding of the necessity of God's wrath. This is what he writes. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. So as he looked at the brutality, he said, how could God not be angry at what he is seeing? He goes on to say, or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a godfatherly fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I want to read that last sentence again. God is wrathful because God is love. When we look at the sinful nature of man and the spread of evil around the world, God's holiness demands wrath 
for the sake of accountability. If there wasn't accountability for this wrath or for this sinfulness, God would no longer be a just God. God would no longer be a loving God. The point of all of this and really this section in Thessalonians is I don't know if you have experienced that horrifying moment when you see your sin for what it is. It's absolute evil and wickedness in light of God's holiness. I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home. I don't care if you've been a quote-unquote good person. Within you resides sin. We minimize our own sinfulness by looking at others, and it's so easy to justify ourselves. But there's nothing more powerful than that moment when the Spirit of God zaps you by showing you the wickedness in your own heart. It's a wonderful moment. There's nothing better than to be laid bare before God, broken. And it's in that moment that this holy God of ours shows us his great love for us by showing us that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place as a substitute. And he shows us grace. There's nothing that we deserve, that we do to deserve this goodness and this gracious act of God. It's beautiful. And we are saved from the coming wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? So in Christ there is a shelter for you. His sacrifice on the cross was once and for all. It was sufficient to make penalty for your sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. We don't live in simple times. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by all that is going on. I would encourage you to look to Jesus and to pull into the safe harbor that he offers you. He offers security and peace. In him, we can find peace. We can find rest in the midst of great adversity. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what our politicians are going to do. We don't know what the virus is going to do. We, like, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, the times are very difficult and stressful right now. And the hope that we have is found in the sovereignty of God, knowing that Jesus paid it all for you, for me. And as the old hymn says, all to him we owe. In affliction, there is joy and peace available to you. In affliction, we long for his return. With that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to stay anchored to Christ in all uh, that we navigate through. Father, I pray for those that are uncertain about their relationship with him, that you would give them peace and hope and 
assurance that they have actually placed their faith in Christ for salvation. If they haven't, Lord, please help them to see who Christ is and that they would believe upon him for salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us as we navigate these times. We look to you for comfort, for hope, for wisdom. In all that we do, may you lead us and guide us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you all have a wonderful week. God bless you, and I'll see you next week.